Hey everybody, welcome to episode 73 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back. Welcome aboard. On today's show, we will be speaking with consummate explorer Adam Haydock. He is an expedition caver and cave diver, a photographer, a canyoneer, a rescue tech, and a dive master. He and I met in July in a park in Bishop, California, right before some storms rolled in to talk about his adventures beneath the earth, beneath the water, and what is involved when being part of a multi-day cave expedition. As I said, we recorded this in July earlier this year, and it was 10 days after the final rescue of the students in Thailand. I'm sure many of you recall that from the many news reports, so that topic will come up in the show as it was fresh on everyone's minds. But that is enough of my babbling. Let's get on to the show and let's go talk to Adam Haydock. My name is Adam Haydock. I'm a expedition cave diver, canyoneer, rescue technician, dive master, and I like to hike. Probably the worst places that people think there might be nightmares, I find them to be paradises for myself. You mentioned to me that you are from Chicago, and although I have not been to Chicago, I am aware that much like where I grew up, it is extremely flat, and so there probably were not a lot of these opportunities to you growing up, so how do you transition into all these? Because dive master, expedition caver, that's not weekend warrior stuff. No, well, I started as a dive rescue technician, and I was working with the state of Illinois, as a special maritimes operator on Lake Michigan. So we were working with fire police, Coast Guard, and uh, we're on the Great Lakes. Typically on the weekends, we had to do some body recoveries, pulling people over on boats, working off of helicopters, short of sea type work, sea to sea a bit. But mostly it was patrolling the beaches and trying to be the first to respond to incidences that happen on the shoreline of Great Lakes. How'd you get involved in that? How'd you know that that was an option to you to do that? Well, I was going to be a state trooper and I was in the final interview. They were going through layoffs. Which is usually not what you want to hear. No, it's not. Especially my final interview. I was really looking forward to it. And they offered that they had this other position come up. I was like, what the hell? Let's do it. That's actually really cool. So it was almost by accident. Somewhat. There was a lot of applicants. I think there was a thousand people that applied. They accepted 100 and only 12 of us made it through the program. Did you already have experience in those areas or you just went in cold turkey and learned everything then? It was very little experience. I got open water certified and it did my advanced and then went through that. It was difficult. It was really challenging to get through the program. It was in Lake Michigan, waters in January, trying to tie knots underwater, pulling out mannequins, swimming through high surf in 38 degree water. It was really cold. And Lake Michigan in January in Chicago is, there's ice out there. It wasn't easy at all. Well, most of the guys didn't, they couldn't complete the program because it was just too much for them. And so 12 of us made it. And that's how we got the job. After a couple months of rigorous training, they accepted 
accepted us into the role. I like how this is starting out so far because there's always that thing where you make a plan and you're like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to follow this, and then by this age, I'm doing this, and this is my life. And then, of course, none of that ever happens for anyone. There's that saying, what life is what happens while you're making plans or something like that. And so your plan was to become a state trooper, and then you kind of realized, oh, well, that's probably not going to have a lucrative future since they're already laying off people. And then you end up in this other realm that is kind of, I would imagine, to a certain degree, steered you in somewhat of a different direction towards the direction that you've gone now. Yeah, it was interesting how that played out like that. After I got through the program, I got my dive master and then started getting into technical diving. So we would dive with mixed gases and go deeper than 120 feet. I got up to the level of normoxic trimix, so I was able to dive... I would dive down to 200. I wouldn't want to go too much deeper with the gases that we had. But one of the things that I enjoyed a lot that I somewhat miss, but I don't, it's not overwhelmingly, I miss it. I want to go back and keep doing it. But I do miss the, the shipwreck diving out there. And that was absolutely fantastic. Unfortunately, we got laid off. The program shut down after a couple years and they transitioned everything over to the police fire department and they repurposed everybody. So, but I just kept diving and kept going out there. And we got this see some beautiful shipwrecks and some of these some of these wrecks you go down 180 feet it's cold it's like 34 degrees down there it's like that all year so there's nothing that lives down there and these shipwrecks they sink in the 1850s so you can go inside some of the galleys you can go inside some of the rooms that they had down there and you can still see the dinner table set up you can still see artifacts i remember seeing shoes i remember seeing china even China's still in the cabinets, in the galley. And some of these ships, they look like they sank 20 years ago, and they're 150 years old. So I thought that was really remarkable to see human ingenuity at its finest and how how much effort that they put into handcrafting these ships and the lives that were at stake and what they had to do to not only make money for themselves, but in my opinion, to keep America going in a sense. They're bringing in immigrants, they're taking out produce, and that was one of the main lines of economy back then. So I found that to be really interesting. One of the things about those shipwrecks, and I haven't been able to dive a shipwreck personally, I'm just a regular open water diver, but I imagine to a certain degree what's so interesting is to it's kind of like an unintentional museum, but then also you get to see the degradation of history as it breaks down the ship itself. So it's almost like you get to, and correct me if if this is inaccurate, but I'd imagine to a certain degree it's like you're getting to watch erosion and move at a different pace, but then also it's it's almost like a museum because everything's been held in place for you to a certain it is. degree. It absolutely is a museum. It's like a time capsule locked in time. And some of the shallower shipwrecks, you could see the effects of erosion a bit more, the more broken up. And there's a few shipwrecks that have had friends take photos of year by year, and you could see the decay that's happening. Uh, there's one in particular called the SS Wisconsin, and it's at 120 feet. And 10, 15 years ago, you could still see the Model Ts that was still in the shipwreck. I believe it was a steel steamer, like a car ferry type of uh, shipwreck. You could see the decay through the years of people taking photos of these Model Ts just disappearing completely. Oh, right, because there's very little light able to penetrate that deep, because you said 180 feet, some of these. Yeah, so these were at 120. It's a little bit more, but they were falling apart a bit more. But when you get down to like 180, 200, everything is a bit more intact. And you got the mast still standing up. You got the bow. You got the boom, the bowsprit. It's all still there. And these are all sincerely shipwrecks, right? None of these were intentionally sank. There's a couple that were intentionally sank. But most of them were authentic. And there was a, a few that were lost completely of no trace from when they left 
port to when they were supposed to arrive in Chicago. And one is the Christmas tree ship. And they found it like 25, 30 years ago, I believe. I don't remember exact dates. And there's bodies still down there. The skeletal remains are still down there. And you get down to depths of 200 feet, 250, 300, 350. The more intact you can find shipwrecks. But at my level of dive certification, I'm not rebreather instructed. You got a whole different type of atmosphere that turns after you get past 200, 250. Yeah, I imagine really just the pressure at that point. So personally, like I was saying, I'm open water certified. So, you know, I'm supposed to go no deeper than 60, but I have been down to 80. And the difference between 60 and 80 was immense yeah. pressure wise. And when I surfaced, I had had some congestion that day and all of my sinuses <laughs> emptied into my mask. Yeah. So when you're getting to the depths that you're talking about, I imagine the pressure alone, the lack of light, and then you just got to be burning through your air. You're going through at a rapid rate. You know, every atmosphere is 33 feet. So you got to think of gas management comes into play. Different mixed gases. I would carry a bottle of 50-50. We call it AL-40. So it will be a 40 on one side and another 40 of pure oxygen. And you can only breathe it at certain depths, but it accelerates your decompression. And then I'll have air or a 21-32 mix some type of normoxic mix to take off the narcosis so it just keeps your mind a bit more clear so if something happens at depth you got some time to think before you're exponentially losing gas so you got to think about it and it's really hard to remember what you saw down there because it's called the martini effect it takes me a while to even sit here and think about it now exactly what i saw in a few places and it comes to my mind but when i look at a photo it really has an effect on you in a lot of different ways. Yeah, explain narcosis to those people who maybe are listening that aren't dive certified and don't know about nitrogen narcosis. Well, narcosis is basically your your body is not getting rid of the nitrogen. It's loading up in compartments. So when you go in at depth, you're loading your compartments. It has an effect on your synapses, which gives you like a hazy, disorienting feel. It feels like you probably drink like three or four beers in an hour, deeper you go, and then the right. more... Th- so, so imagine you're in an environment that you're not built to survive. Right. You need to rely on technical gear, and you're drunk simultaneously. Exactly. <laughs> it gets really interesting real quick, and you can't just shoot up to the surface, or else you can get aged, you can get bent. There's a whole slew of things that can happen. You can get little tiny bubbles that give you embolisms in your blood, which can hit your heart and your brain. You can fizz out and have a stroke before you hit the surface, or you can have one at the surface. Interesting story is that we were diving um, in the last dive of the day. I was on open circuit with a buddy of mine, and we completed our dive, and I see my buddy, he's on a rebreather, and he just starts going right up to the surface rather quickly. You can't just shoot up to the surface to go to your first decompression stop. We like to go 30 feet per minute, and it says 60 feet, but we would go a little bit slower. Why not? right? Margin of safety. And he just shot up basically to the surface. We did our decompression stops, got to 15 feet. And we're looking up and we see his dive gear attached to the boat. I'm pointing at my buddy. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. And all of a sudden we hear a fast boat come by. So the Coast Guard came 15 miles. They just came out of nowhere, it seemed. And they were there. And when we got to the surface, they were telling us to back up because the hydraulics of the intake of this, this boat sucks in water. At, and that's how it propels itself over 100 miles an hour, allegedly. That's got to be great for the sea life. <laughs> right. Underneath. Well, there's nothing really out there at all. But yeah, exactly. And they put him on a stretcher. They put him in the fast boat and they took off and we're getting debriefed. And they told us that he died for a couple minutes. 
and they couldn't revive him. They were trying to get him going, and he was cyanatic, blue as can be, mouth wide open, in the water with his mouth wide open, eyes wide open, and no pulse. They worked him for a few minutes, and the captain just thought he was a goner, and he all of a sudden, out of nowhere, just came alive. So it gets real, really quickly out there, and there's people that I've known that have done everything right, and they still got bent, and they got tossed in the chamber afterwards. So I'm assuming that's where he ultimately ended up, right? Yeah, he went to the chamber for... I think six to 12 hours, I believe. I don't exactly remember, but it was a long time. So diving, you know, you have to be very careful and you're cold and you're tired. And what happened is his sensors weren't reading right. So he didn't change out his sensors and rebreather divers typically use three sensors reading what you're breathing. And I guess one of them wasn't working properly and was telling him that he had a higher oxygen rate, which doesn't make sense, but that's how it goes. So when we get into cave diving, we have to think about that. We have to figure out, you know, where we're going. We, we, we lay line. So there's that much more to think about when we're diving in caves too so it, it just compounds it that much more so you really got to be on top of your game yeah let's let's make that transition now let's talk about how you went from open water and and deep sea diving and these things and have now transitioned into caving and cave diving well i got into dry caving it's basically i was always fascinated with geology i like rocks <laughs> I just always wondered what was down in those holes that I would walk by in Indiana at times. I've enjoyed learning about speology. I had some friends that were speologists, and I just got into recreational caving in Indiana. It was four hours away from Chicago. There's probably two, three hundred caves out there. Some are vertical, so we got into vertical caving a bit. Went down there probably once a month. I just fell in love with it. It was just amazing to see the different formations and the environment and, and just how it's just a completely different world below the surface. It's funny because these two hobbies of yours and, and professions as well, they both involve what are almost like alien environments. You've got beneath the ocean, which is nothing like the surface, and then you've got caving, which is also like an alien environment just beneath our feet. It's been somewhat known that caving is about the closest thing you can get to being in a different planet. Right, you're like an Earth astronaut. Exactly, <laughs> right, exactly. Loved caving and kept doing it and got into photography and I loved taking photos. It was something about capturing the, the moments and maybe I guess some say would say it became an obsession a bit, but I just felt that it was something that I like to document and to share with other people so they can be inspired to try out something different for themselves or for however they saw it on the other side of my looking glass and what it meant to them. But I just felt like, okay, I'm going to put it out there just so people know a bit more because it didn't really seem to me that a whole lot of people knew about cave and it is somewhat of a quiet type of, I guess you could say, sport, but it's more of like a lifestyle, in my opinion. And there's a community involved, and there's conservation efforts, preservation, and, and you know, there's a, a type of person, you know, everybody can go caving, but, you know, there's that type of individual that likes to be in a, such a remote environment, and that's okay with claustrophobia, and that's okay with hanging on a little white piece of rope in the middle of a black abyss where even modern-day lights may not even reach to the wall where you're at. It's fascinating how extensive these systems can be. I can't get enough of it. And so at some point you said, well, I can't get to the other side of this cave because there's water in the way. I know how to scuba dive. So I guess I may as well start doing what is debatably the most dangerous sport on earth and begin cave diving. It does keep your curiosity up. I would say that a lot of individuals that get into project caving and expedition caving, project caving, I think they're both the same, is that we have a sense of curiosity as to how far does this really go? 
I think some people take it to a level where we want to see how deep we can go. Like summoning Mount Everest, for instance. We want to see how, how many numbers we can get. And I've, I know some people like that. I wouldn't say I'm particularly like that. You're not an inverse peak bagger, is <laughs> what you're saying. <laughs> right, the subterranean peak bagger. <laughs> not necessarily. There's some deep systems out there in the world, but you know, a lot of them are cracks, you know, cold cracks. And it's going to take days to get down there and get out. And it does interest me. I have more of an interest in some other projects that I'm working on now. And there's a lot of cave to explore in the world. There's a lot more to be found. And with cave diving, I felt that we can keep going going. The problem is you got to get all that gear back there and you got to get all your equipment and it's all delicate. It's muddy in the cave and stuff gets banged around and there's not much light to inspect it. You know, <laughs> you got to have the right equipment and it has to be durable as can be. And some companies will even give some cave divers equipment so they can test the real durability of it because not many people are going to these destinations that some cave divers go to. So yeah, it's, I would imagine if the gear can get through a squeeze cave, it's going to get through most any other environment that a scuba diver would need. It could, but it could also be wearing down. And then you get to the <laughs> dive and it's broken. So I've seen that happen a lot. and even happened in Mexico when we were diving out there. And we would do some what we call sump diving. So we would dive in these sumps. So it's water-filled passages that could have been filled from seasonal rain or could be monsoon right. as well. And there's a lot that comes into play with that. So we have to employ techniques to work in blackout conditions because we won't be able to see a thing. It's zero visibility conditions. And the dives that I've done in the Midwest, diving through sumps, they would be no mount diving. So we would at points literally push our tanks in front of us and just to feel with our hands which way we're going while we're laying line. So it gets really interesting really quickly. Sometimes we would make multiple trips so we could bring more equipment through so we won't have everything lashed onto us. We'll have a guy laying the line and we would be extra conservative with gas management and constant look at that. And we would communicate by touching each other. I would grab my buddy's foot or he'll grab my foot to say stop or turn around and I would acknowledge so we would have to grab each other. You really got to know your buddy really well. You can't just go in there with anybody. There's nothing pretty to see in these sumps. You just want to get through it and see what's beyond the sump. And it really is just about transportation, right? Just getting from one side of it to the other. It's not like cenote diving no. where it's like this beautiful clear water. We're talking about silty, yeah. obscured water with no visibility whatsoever, right? Exactly. If you're lucky, you got five feet of visibility going in and Midwest diving, which we would call Ginny Clear. Jenny Springs is a popular cave diving site in Florida and 100 feet of visibility, but five feet, maybe 10 if we're super lucky, we would call that clear. And it would be a line drill coming out and it would be zero visibility and we would have to follow our line that we laid coming out so we get out alive. Having these abilities, having your dive master certification, having your cave diving skills, having your caving skills make you a pretty good prospect for expedition caving, which is something that you participate in. So let's talk about your history with expedition caves. Well, I got more involved with caving and got involved with some scientists and geologists that work with caves and studying different aspects of geology of caves. And there's some groups that just want to continue to map caves too. There's different projects with that as well. I got in some projects in uh, Puerto Rico, Costa Rica, Mexico, and it's beautiful. You know, it's great. We get to really go deep and especially in Mexico, there's one place in particular that I've been going to for the past three years. It's in the Sierra Mazdeca of the Providence of Oaxaca. The town is called Huatla. And I was going with a group called Proyecto Speological Sistema Huatla, led by Bill Steele. 
I joined him for the past two years. This year I was with a different group, but we would map Sistema Watla, and I was a photographer. I helped with a bit of data gathering, but we would uh, be going on photo trips. So we would get other photographers together, and just that in itself was an objective to properly photo places that have never been photoed or some places that have been photoed but use updated technology to try to get a better shot. At points, it would take us a day and a half to get down in there, and they're a few thousand feet deep. You have to not only navigate the cave like you normally would and bring all the gear you normally would just for survival, just for functionality, but now you've got additional research gathering gear. And then perhaps, I imagine most of the scientists are going along are fairly well trained in caving, but maybe not as much as people like you that they're relying on. They are. There's there's a lot of exceptional cavers out there, strong cavers that have a lot of skill sets, and they're also graduated in a master's or PhD in geology or even uh, karst morphology, different studies with karst and caves, and and they had they possess all the skill sets as well too. I think. Cave diving does separate some of the people, but there's still a pretty decent amount of people that will add on cave diving to that, too. When you put cave diving into the picture, you're talking about you need more people just to help bring tanks down. Right, just need scuba more tanks equipment. alone are, yeah. are hefty and huge. There's a lot more that goes into it, but when it's dry caving involved, you know, we would go down and some people would stay down for two weeks in the cave and live in the cave for two weeks. We would go down for days and uh, we would bring our food and we have different camps down in these caves. For uh, one cave that's been worked on, it's uh, the La Grieta section of Sistema Watla. There would be different camps down there. So there's camp one, two, three, and now there's a camp four. And every camp was stocked with food and supplies that people would bring down and leave down there. Some people would just would be purpose to do that, and they'll go do something else. And some people would stay down there for a week or two and continue to survey, work on aid climbing, which would be climbing in caves with bolts and other means and continue to map and explore this cave. And Sistema Watla is the deepest cave in the Western Hemisphere. So this year, we had a team of cave divers from around the world go to a different section of Watla. And we were a bit southwest of Watla. I know somebody's going to read me for not knowing, but now <laughs> I think it was southwest. Please, please just forgive him if his geography is off. Right, just a bit off. But we were about an hour and a half on a mountain tax dirt road to Loma Grande, which was the area in Plan Carlota where Pesh works out of. It's around 6,000 feet. We got down about 3,000 feet, so it was a lot warmer and it was a little drier. So they got a lot of rain that goes up there, but we were drier. And, man, it was an interesting trip. It was a really good trip. We had about, I think it was 26 people showed up, British cave divers, Australian, Irish, some Polish, American cave divers, people from all over the world, really, that had to bring skill sets with cave diving, caving, living in caves, the means to know how to survey, aid climbing, and I was also tasked with addition to photo this cave. And the cave name was Cueva de la Pina Catarata, which means Cave of the Red Wall. And this is where it's believed that the water comes out from Sistema Watla. And Sistema Watla is a massive system, miles and miles. I believe it's over 50 miles at this point. And it still goes. It, they're still going. After 50 years of mapping this cave, it still goes, which is interesting. But this section, there was sump diving involved. So there was seven sumps in the cave itself. And we were trying to connect 
Cueva de la Pina Carrara with the San Agustin section of Sistema Walla, which was the lowest point in the Sistema Walla system. And there were about 13 kilometers away, which would be, it's quite the distance. It would either be a long penetration, extended range, rebreather dive with a saturation habitat that we did bring, staging multiple tanks and scooters. We had scooters in place and we had a lot of You've, you've got to talk about what a saturation habitat is. We can't let those words slide by. We can't let that slide by. <laughs> I, I have an idea what maybe I think it is, but it sounds like a very interesting device. It's pretty interesting. <laughs> that is out of my dive level. So there was a group within our group that was rebreather divers, and they would be the tip of our spear, I guess you could say. So I was on open circuit, and there was a group of open circuit cave divers. So we would act more as support. And I was a photographer, so we got photos in this cave and photos of some of the events that happened. But a saturation habitat is basically a place where people can off-gas, and if you're in an extended range... It's basically a, an enclosement. We use a lift bag, a massive lift bag, and we would either drill with a waterproof drill, bolts into the rock, or we would attach it somehow. And is it inflatable? Is it's that, inflatable. So you bring it in collapsed, yeah. and then you can inflate it underwater. You inflate it okay. underwater to extend somebody's habitat at depth. It's almost like a diving bell or something to a certain degree. Pretty much so, yeah. So we had that prepared, but we didn't actually employ it and use it. I think it almost took about a month from when we started to rig, set up Camp 1 and Camp 2 with rig with bolts, aid climb. We brought a dive compressor down into the jungle so we could refill tanks. We had mules to help us. I'm we sure had, you had many. Yeah, we had, well, we had a few, but we were doing a lot of work. It was definitely an expedition. Everybody was working. And how much time on average were you spending underground before you'd come to the surface? I only had a limited amount of time. So I was down there for about, I think it was three or four days. And then I had to come out so I can get out and get back to Las Vegas. But my primary objective was to photo. About as far as I can get, if we can get the whole cave, great. But I wanted to get the whacking gray chamber, which was the massive big room. And that was an event in itself to get that shot. I had to stuff my camera equipment in a cylinder, so we strapped on our tanks. So we had to bring our tanks down 2,100 or 2,400 feet of elevation loss. So we're hiking about half mile down this mountain, and then we get to the canyon. We can't be in this canyon at night because they have the pit vipers come out, and in the daytime, it's 100 degrees down there. So you got to time it right. There is some suspicious characters in the hills where we got stuff <laughs> stolen. So yeah, they're, they're probably more worrisome than the pit vipers. Yeah, it was. it got interesting. The town stayed staged a coup at one point because we were laying out line for a comm line. We were going to set up a comm line between camp one and camp two so we can communicate with each other in the cave. So we would lay, really lay line, kilometers of line through the cave so we can talk to each other to see if they need extra supplies and we could at least get out and get some more stuff. They saw us doing that and they thought that we were up to no good because they haven't really seen Westerners, period. That's how remote it was and we got blocked in. They blocked the only road out and we had to meet with the El Gente. And the El Gente requested a meeting with the mayor. And so the expedition leaders couldn't get in, even into the cave after a month and a half and work on their operations because they were dealing with surface misunderstandings. Right. You, you think the most dangerous part is the caving, but it can turn out to be potentially the people, right? <laughs> it could be a lot of things. And you could see them looking at you through the hills up above and pointing down at you. And there's this bunch of Westerners with $250,000 worth of equipment more equipment than most dive shops would carry, multiple ones probably. And we're just in this person's living room. Right. They have no idea 
why you're there. They have a pretty good reason to be concerned. I get it, but we had interpreters that were there that would communicate to them. Another blockage was that a lot of them spoke Mazatoc. It's a form of Spanish, but it's their own dialect. So we had to hit that interpreted from Mazatoc to Spanish to English and go back and forth so we had to find the right person for that. It got interesting, and there were some heated debates in the neighborhood, and so they kept postponing things, but the operation in the cave kept going. So as long as we were able to get what we needed to get done, I guess that was good. But it was a task. I showed up sick to Mexico. I was just getting over being sick, and the first day was, you know, it was a bit harsh. I had about 65, 70 pounds on my back, and that was just one load. I brought it into the cave, and then he hiked back up into the jungle to get into the entrance, and then he got about a 350-foot slippery downward crawl with thousands of gnats that you're breathing in. And the cave was hot. It was Lechuguilla hot. It was like 72 degrees Fahrenheit and 100% humidity. And you go up and down a few slopes and it's jagged and you want to cut yourself because that's that's an issue. Even if a little cut you get on your body, it doesn't exactly heal out there in, in the cave. So you got to be really careful. And we get down to dive base is where we set up our dive equipment in the cave. And then I came all the way back out to base camp to get my second load of stuff, which was my chemi gear. So the next day I came back down and strapped on my dive kit and we had to wear our SRT kit which is our single rope technique kit so that's our climbing kit is basically what that is it's our cave climbing kit so we had that on we had our tanks on and we have to strap bags to us too to drag our bags our camping equipment our food it all had to be in waterproof tubes that's dive rated and that can handle pressures and the depths that we were getting down to was 60 feet uh, and the sumps would last between two three minutes to the longest one was like eight minutes when you explore a sump that you haven't been in before and you're unsure of the distance that it's going to spread, I imagine that there's a predetermined amount of time where you would turn around if you hadn't found the end? Yeah, you have to. You have to have that or else you're running into some big issues. You don't have time to sit there and think about which way should I go. You really need a plan, especially with diving on that type of terrain and environment. They had some issues laying the line, but, you know, they worked through it. They were absolutely fantastic guys that were laying the line in there. We would follow the line and we get to a point where we're entering this huge lagoon. It was almost like a small, I wouldn't say a lake of sorts, but it was a pretty sizable pond of water. And we're coming 60 feet up and we're just completely completely surrounded, encapsulated with no walls around us. So you can get disoriented a bit and you got to follow that line or else you can get lost even right in there. And we come up to the surface and we're in this massive pool and we got to literally climb on rope right out of the sump. With your gear. With our gear on. We had our tank still on us and my camera equipment is dangling. So I had an extra 20, 25 pounds on me and flash bulbs are in there and external flashes. And it becomes cumbersome. It's a bit of an inconvenience to have to work through rebelays wearing your diving kit with your tanks on. It gets interesting when you get in there. But we finally got through it. There's a lot of walking passage. And then we got to Camp 1 eventually. Beautiful cave camp. Best cave camp I've been to. It was great conditions. And it was a nice sandy beach right in the cave and right next to the water. And it was good. It was really good. You were largely part of the mapping team, you were saying. So you were there to take a lot of photographs and help them to map the cave. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the techniques? Because I imagine mapping the interior of a dark cave where you may not be able to see all sides of a chamber at once is a little different than a survey crew going out and mapping something on the surface. Well, this particular expedition, the cave was already mapped. We were literally getting back there to continue where the last expedition stopped in 1984 to try to connect these two caves together. And if there was secondary opportunities to do some ape climbing, which there was, we would go and do that and we would try to survey the passage. But yeah, the primary objective was to see if we can find another air passage beyond Sump 7 
11 or continue with a long extended dive and keep going. But with survey, you know, you have technology now where you can use lasers to... LiDAR technology, I'm assuming. Well, we have a Disto X to where you can measure the slope and the inclination and uh, get your azimuth and distance. Some people still use tape measure, which is good. And we would take notes on what we find. And we have some people which is beyond point would be the, the point for the survey. And we would have sketchers as well, too. Some surveyors do both. You know, they know how to do both. And typically, everybody knows how to do that. But the sketching part, I think, is the skill set that is in most demand for the survey aspect. Because sketching can be difficult, especially when you're trying to draw and think in like a 3D like of a scale. And certain kinds of people can do it. And, you know, some people, it's more difficult. You know, for me, I just started picking it up more and more as of last year and this year. And I got it down, but I'm not going to, I can't consider myself an expert by any means. You know, if they need help, I can do it. But if they need something mapped accurately and drawn accurately, there's other people out there that do it. And I think that's the great thing about expeditions is that some of us bring skill sets that are a bit more than others and we're able to complement each other. So let's say I can run point and when somebody's sketching, I can take photos or at least map out how I want to take the, the right shot for the photo. And I think photography becomes a skill set in itself. And it, it, it gets really difficult to get everybody together to be inspired to sit there for a little while. Sometimes you're sitting in cold water <laughs> to right. hold this flash here. Oh, wait, it didn't work properly. Point it, point the flash this way. You know, I want to try something else. So that didn't work whatsoever. And we're and they're just sitting in the water freezing. And so you got to keep the morale up. You got to show them what the end result is going to look like. You want to keep keep people happy when you when you go out on a photo shoot. You know, getting people to commit to a, to a photo trip within the expedition, I think, is you know in itself something that at times can be difficult for some people because they want to do other things. But it's necessary to photo document what's going on as well. I think it's just as important to photograph as well as to to serve that. I know a lot of people are going to debate me on that, but I, I see value in both aspects. When you're carrying camera gear through there, are you doing both types of photography? Are you doing technical and then also capturing? the photographs of the expedition in action? If I can stick with one thing, I would I would do photography and stick with that. But most of the time, I would, I would say so. It's like, I'm just going to try to photo and concentrate on that. And there'll be other people that would say, for instance, survey, or, or we would just have people go out for a day. We're in this cave for a week. Today, we're going to go do a photo trip here and do a little bit of survey. And then the next day, we'll do more survey. We'll break it down into different compartments with what we'll do in our itinerary and our, obje- our objectives for what we're getting done in the cave. But with, with photography, and especially with ha- what happened in, in Mexico this year, some of my flash bulbs broke because the depth, the, the pressure, oh, just actually the pressure. cracked Oh, them. wow. So I was out half my bulbs, so I had only half more to go. So I had to engineer it, right? So I was able to make sure I got the best shots every time I took a photo. And I had external flashes too, but for the, the big passage, the whacking great chamber, it was massive. It was 150 feet to the ceiling, about 100, 120 feet from wall to wall. Right, so hard to light. Yeah, it was, it was big. <laughs> it was a big big room and there was a big slope there and the rope was left there from 84 which still worked for people oh, really to climb you still up trusted on. a rope from 84 it was, a, huh? it was yeah right <laughs> it was a thick rope but it was used as a hand line and people went up to the top and it was really slippery and one guy dropped my box with bulbs and he had to go all the way back down and get it go back come back up and you know i'm really thinking about how can i keep everybody safe but get the best shot possible and you know people were slipping i don't want somebody to fall if we needed a rescue in that cave basically the whole expedition shut down and we right. might even have to contact um, some folks uh, in Cheve that 
now that expedition was going on or even um, in Sistema Watla with Pesh and get more people. It's just a, a massive mess if we have to do a rescue. Had we recorded this, say, six months ago, we'd maybe take some time to explain to the audience why cave rescues are so difficult. Oh, but yeah. because of recent events in Thailand, it seems yeah. like everyone is now aware of how difficult rescues can be inside of a cave. Yeah, I'm so glad that they got all those kids out. I know firsthand what it can be like to have a situation come up like that. On one of my trips, I had someone actually die. He had a heart attack. We were on a dive trip in, in Indiana, and he ended up dying, and I'm working in him, and, you know, he just didn't, didn't come back alive. So everybody was hysteric, of course, you know, and I knew that he was dead after I was working him for 10 minutes. He had the heart attack in water or in the dry We were area? in a river passage, river so passage. I had people hold him up, and I'm laying on top of him, I'm trying to work him, but after 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes, I mean, you're, you know, oxygen to your, your brain, you know, it's not, it's not looking good for you. Um, he was a, he was a good friend of mine too. We eventually got to a mud pile and we were able to think things through and I ended up leaving with another guy to initiate NCRC, which is the National Cave Rescue Commission. We got in hold of Anmar and Jess, some of our uh, friends in central Indiana, and we were able to get 150, I believe it was 150 people show up and within a matter of hours. And that's one of the beauties of you know, being a caver is that you have friends that will take you in to their house. You can go, you have places to stay, especially in Tag and even out west too, but more so in Tag, it's like a community of people. So everybody... And for those that don't know what that is, it's Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia. So there's like 10,000 caves in that area right there. There's a lot of caves. They came out in numbers and uh, the DNR came and nobody really knew what to do. So I briefed, I think it was Amar, on what I think should happen. And I went back into the cave to, cause some people stayed there. They wanted to keep working them just for the sake of doing it. And so I went back in there with some, some hot food and water. And I brought a couple guys with me, strong cavers that showed up, brought some blankets. And we had some uh, teams come with the SCED, which is a device that bends around tight crevices to bring a patient out. They started coming in after we were coming out. It took a while to get people to come out, but we all got out. We all stuck together. And, you know, it's an experience that none of us forget. I held on to survivor's guilt for a little bit. I felt it was my fault, but, you know, I let that go. You know, it's tough being a rescue diver. I've been on recoveries and you know, I've seen stuff like that and I had a somewhat of an understanding of what was going on, but it's still tough when he's a, when he's a good friend of yours and you just see it happen. And the coroner told me that he just had a coronary heart attack, massive heart attack, and there's nothing you just, could have done. Just bad timing. Even if you got him up, you'll need a whole emergency room of equipment to keep him, keep him going. So that was... I don't know, I'm not going to say, I can't say that it was relieving, but it's just, okay, you know, it's just something that, it just happens, and you have to accept it, a part of being in a cave like that and so remote. But you really don't have the access, like a cannoneer would, if... Right, a helicopter cannot get you out. A helicopter could pick you off somehow. They could wrap in with a pterodapter and a ferno and, you know, haul you out somehow, or there's a roof over your head in the cave. With what's going on in Thailand, it was it was very interesting. And we were in Hawaii at the time, and when I got back, it really hit, hit to me what the gravity of it all was. And we were thankful that they got them out. It was a very interesting situation, very unique. There was a lot of lessons learned. Uh, there were some unconventional techniques used with that. And, you know, some of my friends were out there, too, from Britain, and an Irish guy, too, Jim Warney and... Chris Jewell, Connor Rowe, and we know them personally. And, you know, within our community, we want to make sure that, you know, we keep the, the flow of accurate information as streamlined as possible. So we don't really talk about it until they are ready to. And they have started talking about some things. So obviously we don't want to ride on any kind of limelight, which I've heard some rumors about with some people. And it's just not how we look at things. It's, it's important to, to be there for them because, you know, there are... They're our brothers and sisters, too. You know, we care for them, and 
we cared for what they were doing, and it was absolutely amazing what they pulled off. It, it was shocking to me. Yeah. When they started the rescue, I would check in the morning when I woke up to see if there had been results, and I was shocked every time they said, we got everybody out, we got everybody out, we yeah. got everybody out. We even had a flood happen in Mexico. It was right after I left, too, and I got to Waltlaw, and I'm with Jim Warney. It's me, Jim, drinking beers in Waltlaw. I'm telling him, hey, man, I don't know about all this rain. The whole region, all the towns, and this is a little bigger of a, I would say it's a small city of sorts. Everything's on a slope. Everything slopes down and it's all going into caves, all this water. And it was downpouring and it kept raining and it just kept raining for days. And I'm like, I wish there was a way that we can tell these guys that it's raining. I'm in Waltla and that rain is going to run off into Cueva de la Pina, Colorado. There was a couple of Cheve cavers that showed up from the Cheve expedition that I met up with. You know, we, we told them and they went over there, but the, the group that was in the cave, they were finishing up their dives. They got all their equipment out. There's a, there's a massive hill and then in, in this cave and then there's sump three. So they got their equipment to sump three and the water rose exponentially. They went back into the whacking great chamber, sat there for three days while the water blocked their passages. They, they grabbed everything they could but they only had a few bars to share with amongst one another. And they called the room now Bivy 69 because they were in there for 69 hours in this room. And the floodwaters receded enough to where they were able to get out. They were happy to get out. Yeah, but they were in good spirits. And it's something that we, we don't expect to happen, but we're, we're somewhat prepared for to be in, involved with that. And that also happened in... Uh, in Sistema Walla, too. That happened in that cave. Another group got trapped. They got out and everybody was fine. But it's it's another test of mental endurance that I think makes that type of caver, you know, the right fit for these types of operations. You have to be okay with being in a cave for a week. It's tough. It's tough to go through something like that. But, you know, I think that with the kids in Thailand, I think their coach was, was somebody that really helped them out a lot to, to keep their spirits high. And I think psychology, you got to keep that healthy, especially when you're in that kind of situation. You don't expect it to happen like weeks you know we know what we're getting into but those kids probably didn't they didn't realize what happened until it happened that's tough that's got to be tough on those kids and i mean i really give it to the coach that was there and some people were criticizing him and in my opinion i think that he was one of the biggest players that kept those kids alive with their mental endurance i try not to connect Thailand to in Mexico, we're, we're trying to keep separation from that. Some of our guys were on our group in Mexico that were there, but you know we, we thank them for that. It's, they, they had to think about some methods that were unconventional. They were not sure that was, they were going to work. And when Rich came through the last air passage, they were running out of line and they, they, could smell the, they could smell the kids. That's how they found them. Mm. And one at a time they came down and he spoke about it recently. So the information's out there now. But yeah, he, they were running close, but they found them and they were able to get them out. Yeah, it's it's a pretty spectacular, spectacular in the sense that it's fantastic that it turned out so well. Yeah. Because there's no reason to think that it would. Right. I'm saddened by, you know, the, the Thai Navy SEAL that, that died. That's that's terrible. From what it sounded like to me, in my opinion, it sounded like a gas management piece that came out. But again, I don't want to go on record and say that's right, right, right. what it r really happened because I'm not for sure. But I believe that's what it was. We were given some information on what our guys were going through. And, you know, they, they talked about it. It's out there now. And they had some close calls. But they held it and they kept it through and they kept the kids alive and they got them out. I saw Chris, Connor, and Rich on, um, I think it was a BBC, and listening to them talk about it. And yes, there are heroes. They're heroes, but, you know, they don't, they don't see it like that. You know, it's just something that we are just 
accustomed to doing, and I, I can understand both sides of that. And as a rescue diver, I just saw me we're just doing the job, you know, and it's tough. I could see it being a situation where you would feel guilty if you didn't do something. Like, I have the skills to do something about this, and if right. I don't, then I'm allowing tragedy to happen. Yeah, I talked to Jim a bit. There's a certain amount of skill sets that, that you get to a point, and it's years. It takes years to get to that point. And, you know, some of those guys have been doing it for 20, 25 years, 30 years, and they're the best of the best. I don't, you know, it's just what we do. You know, it's <laughs> right. what they do. And, right. you know, it's just when you're at that level. I was looking at that map, what they were doing, and I could see, yeah, these are the guys that can do it. Yeah, I, I forget which, which person it was, but I remember seeing something where, where he had said, well, I guess I've been training my whole life for this. I just didn't know this is what I was training for all along. Yeah, I don't remember exactly who said that either. I wasn't sure. I mean, everybody that was there was dedicating so much time and effort. Um, a lot of us would have gone if they needed us. But, you know, it's just something that we want to do to help people. And now people are more aware of caves, it appears. And it seems like it's the trendy subject. And, you know, people talk about it a lot now which is good, wondering about why this happened and how it happened, how it could be prevented, and I think it may have set a, a milestone for things to, to think about topics in the future, too. Yeah, I think there would definitely be some data and some, some training that will come from what was learned from that yeah. event. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then hopefully, just for the general public, some education that is valuable to them as well. Yeah. There are dangers that general public might not be aware of, and they could end up in the same situation, and maybe now they'll be less likely to end up in that situation. Right. Yeah, these caves flood, and they can be killers. And the hydrology and understanding about caves and even why caves form, a lot of them, it's, it's well, all of them, really, it's, it's about water and the movement of water and hydrology and dissolution. Of course, there's different types of caves out there, lava tube caves and wind caves. When we're talking about these deep cave systems, you know, a lot of it's solutional activity. And the dissolution of, of rock, carbonic acid, and eating its way, and water working its way through. It's not to be messed with. It's like canyoneering. It's similar of sorts. I like to call it caving in the sunlight when I go <laughs> canyoneering with my buddies. It's caving with the sun, but we're all going down. We're not going back up the rope. Which is funny because there is that cave in Mexico, Torreadero, and we all refer to it as an underground canyon because it's like canyoneering in a cave. Right, right. Canyoneering (laughs) without the sunlight. Right. right? There's no squeezes. Right. So for me, it's great. Yeah, yeah. I have yet to get down there. I wanted to check that place out. I had some buddies that went down there. It looks interesting. But yeah, canyoneering, I, I find some similar fusions with cave techniques with canyoneering, but you know, there's, some, there's some different stuff involved with it. And, you know, you, you got to watch out for that water too, like in Zion, for example. I wouldn't not go into a canyon if it's above 20% chance of, of rain. Right, or if the sky looks like it does where we are right now. There's no way. There's no <laughs> way I would do it. So what do you have in store for the future? Do you have future expeditions planned? Are you in a in-between time? What's, what's going on with you? Well, there's a lot. There's some um, upcoming projects ongoing with Colombia, Ecuador. I was invited out to Uzbekistan for Dark Star. Mexico, definitely. We're going to go back next year. Are so, you going back to continue the same? Yeah, we're going to go to a different part. So the diver is actually, so what they found was pretty much the same thing what guys found in 84 which was just a big breakdown pile and they couldn't get through it. Unfortunately, it didn't go anywhere. The water receded and they couldn't find another passage and they searched in some seven and there's nothing. So we think the water comes up from the middle of the cave. Cuevita, Pina, Colorado, maybe some type of overflow recharge cave of sorts. So it takes an extra water from the main system somewhere. And there's another resurgence called the Watla resurgence. That's been, there's been about three or four expeditions been in there. 
We're going to go check out some other uh, resurgences and some other ranges, and I believe there's another expedition going on next year in, um, in Waltla with Pesh, possibly. There's a lot of opportunities out there. There's a lot of, a lot of good stuff. I also want to do some more work in Nevada, find some caves out in the mountains out there, and we've been finding some pretty good stuff out there recently, which is good, and maybe some stuff in northern Utah and, I don't know, places. We'll see. <laughs> Just going there was places. There a bit of a smile, <laughs> like maybe there's a secret there that he didn't want to share. I don't know if that's the case, but that's what I read into that smile. So if anyone was interested and they wanted to see some of these photographs or see some of the things you've done or try to keep up with future expeditions and other things you'll be part of, is there a place they can go online and find those things? Yeah, they can go to uh, my website. That's www.even-further.com go to my uh, blog, adamhaydock.blogspot.com. I have a lot of uh, trip reports information on there. Website has some good information. I have sections on previous trips, previous uh, projects that I've worked on, photos, a lot of good stuff on there. And we have uh, articles out in NSS. We're going to have a few articles in print with Dive Magazine and uh, Geographical Magazine, which is the Royal Geographical Society's magazines in the United Kingdom. Uh, we'll have some more stuff coming out. What is it? I think it's called Adventure Wilds, possibly. <laughs> One in Australia. we got um, other places where you can read about the recent Mexico trips and other Mex- Mexico trips that have been happening and other projects that go on in Waltla and different regions of Mexico. It's pretty hot out there with people um, mapping caves and exploring deep systems in Mexico. Papua New Guinea is another one, too, that got brought up. It's a bit expensive to get out there from here, but it, there's, there's an ongoing project going on there on a yearly basis, too. And, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of stuff that's going on, possibly Antarctica um, oh, nice. with uh, Mount Erebus. Yeah, there's there's some really good things going on. I think um, caving is starting to become a bit more, I wouldn't say popular, but there seems to be more nonprofits and projects popping up to explore these um, these systems around the world, and it's and it's fantastic. You know, more people get involved. You know, more people get involved with NCRC. People are getting involved with just the aspects of caving. You see, even recreational caving, and you know, under wanting to know more about it, learning how to do it safely, and. And I always like to recommend people to join their local grotto or show up to a meeting, at least, just to learn about how to safely cave. What it, what it means to be a caver is, is good, but just knowing what to expect and not just go into the cave and thinking you can get out. I've seen climbers, I've seen cannoneers get stuck in caves. They couldn't climb out. I've seen that. Uh, I've read about stories with people, so it's... And it even happens to cavers, too. There's some things that happen. But you really want to get trained properly. You know, there's a lot of good people out there that are more than willing to help learn about the aspects of cave and the geology of it, to learn how to climb rope, learn what to bring into a cave just on a recreational basis if you're going to go in just for the day or half day. You know, and if you get serious enough, and there's even opportunities out there where people are inviting individuals to join expeditions too. You know, they need the help. I recommend getting into survey and sketching. It's a really good good avenue to to contribute to mapping caves. And it's important. It's very important to have a map of a cave. Um, photography is good too, and it's there's a lot to do, and it's just a whole other world under us that I think. Everybody should have the right to explore because it's ours. I've never heard anyone go into a cave and come out and say, "Eh, I guess it was okay. Everyone always seems to be really impressed with whatever they saw (laughs) down in the cave. You just looked at someone that maybe has proved otherwise. 
Well, I've, <laughs> I used to lead a, a lot of trips into into caves in Illinois. So we would take people from Chicago. We would go down to Indiana, go into caves. So these people didn't never been to a cave before, and we would break it down what to bring, what we're doing. We'd show them a map of where we're going, and we would have experienced people behind them in the middle of the group and in front of the group and really took great measures to to work through it and um you know it was great you know it was a it was a nice group of cavers out in uh, chicago it was called winnie city grotto we would have a lot of fun we would go down to to indiana and would bring people that were really that, that just were curious to people that were terrified about going to the cave and some people got over their fears some guys thought that they could do it and they got out and we went back to camp and they didn't show up they just took <laughs> off back to chicago they they didn't want to deal with it anymore they didn't want to go to the camp and hang out there's there's people that hated it people that loved it people that kind of went eh, and some people were just in awe of what's under us what's under our feet you know and that's that's great to to be able to inspire people like that to, to find someone that didn't even realize how interesting something could be. And there's not really a whole lot of outdoor activities, so to say. There's no mountaineering or canyoneering or caving in Chicago. So there's some climbing, You're just and there's ice climbing maybe in the wintertime, two hours south. But that's really about it. We would turn out a few cavers from that, which was good to see. So we were contributing to the grotto and growing that. and So it was nice. And, you know, it was, it was a community as well. So people would laugh, have fun. You know, it was just great camaraderie, especially in central Indiana and southern Indiana and Kentucky and Tag. And it's just a fantastic community of people. Like you, you go in there and they're welcoming. You may not even know who these people are. And you're like, yeah, come on. You want to stay for the night? Here, sleep in my bed. And they'll sleep in, on the couch. I've, and it's just it's great. And, and you do that for people that come to you. And it's really interesting. Really, really interesting uh, culture of people. And I think that's another aspect of what makes caving such a great, a great piece that we can do. So before we finish this up, is there anything you want to leave the audience with or anything we haven't mentioned yet that you want to make sure to share with people? I think you should talk to, talk to people. If you're interested in caving, you're interested in learning more about what it is, how do I get involved, you, reach, you can reach out to me if you like. You can reach out to your local grotto. Most of them are very, very welcoming to people. That's really the best way to go at it. You know, be careful with it. And I think that you could find a whole lifetime worth of opportunities to go caving. And there's so much more to be found if you really have that knack for exploring and the curiosity is is something that is itching at you to to explore more to go deeper and go further somewhere i think that you can find that with the world of caving and that's why i like to that's why i call my website even further is that you know take yourself out of a point of your nine to five job or mediocrity or just a standard norm of living and look a little bit further there's so much so much more out there than one may ever think. And there's opportunities left and right to experience it. So look into it more. And I, I think that you'll find, you'll find something that you may not have thought that even existed. That's one of the things I've heard from people that they didn't even realize how extensive something could be. Or you walk into a big stadium-sized room from just a small hole that you went through in the entrance. And there's cave systems that go for miles. Mammoth Cave is over 400 miles. So there's a lot that are like 100. Lechuguia, I think, is a 135. Some that are 50 miles, 20 miles. Some go down 50 feet, 100, 200. Some go down thousands. It's just a whole other world. See what a different species, how they live in complete darkness and how they survive. It's fascinating. It's like being on another planet almost. All right. Well, I want to thank you for coming up here to Bishop. Well, thank you. <laughs> and meeting me. I felt the drop of rain. 
but I've only felt one, so we seem to have beat the weather. We're looking <laughs> so out right now. Sweet. It's all over us here, I see. <laughs> yeah. it, but. So we, we'll go ahead and finish this off and put these mics away before it starts to rain on us. And uh, yeah, thanks again for doing it, man. Thank you for bringing me out here. I appreciate it. You should all keep your eyes peeled to Royal Geographic Society's Dive Magazine and Geographical Magazine for present and future articles from Adam about his various explorations. You also may look for him on expeditions through Mexico, Peru, and Colombia in the coming year. And right now, you could head to our website, gogetoutside.com. Look for this, episode 73 with Adam Haydock, and there you will find links to the various things we talked about in the show, and you can see numerous photographs, photos of Adam in action, and those he has taken on his various expeditions. And I always invite everyone at the end of the show to go to the show notes, to go to the website and look at the links and the photographs. But this is particularly one of those episodes where it is in your best interest to go see some of these photographs. There is a reason people pay Adam to come along, grab these photos, and then magazines print them. There is some magnificent work there, so head to the website and take a look at that. And while you are there on the website, perhaps you'd like to drop us a line here at the show and let us know what you thought about this, past, or future episodes. Well, you may do that by sending us an email, go at butcherbirdstudios.com. Or if you prefer, you may give us a call, 818-925-0106. You would be able to leave us a voicemail or send us a text message. And if you would like to do us a great big favor and help this show continue far into the future, then please go to your podcast purveyor of choice, subscribe to the show, rate it, review it, and share it with someone who you think would like this show. This episode of the Go Get Outside podcast was edited by Griffin Davis. It was produced and recorded with additional editing by me, your host, Jason Milligan. And as always, it was brought to you by Butcher Bird Studios. Next time on the show, come back December 1st for a roundtable discussion on the impact of humans in the outdoors. I am very proud of this episode. I want you all to come back. It is about a very important subject and it is a damn good episode. It might sound like homework. It's not. Come back December 1st. Listen to us talk about how you and I and everyone else is impacting this natural environment that we all love. December 1st, roundtable discussion, human impact. See you then.